Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast that tackles real life issues that you can relate to. Each episode focuses on one specific topic with an expert to give you all the answers you'll need as you step out into this world. I'm Georgie Clark, and this is Change My Mind. Today's show covers a topic that historically has gotten very little attention, women's health. This is a complex field, and I wanted to do this the right way. So I've brought in the most knowledgeable expert I could find, Dr. Helen O'Neill. Dr. Helen lectures medical and master's students and has her own research group. She has been published extensively on reproduction and genetics. So welcome, Dr. Helen. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here chatting with me. I feel like we're going to learn so much today from you and obviously talk about the F word that not many people are actually talking about, the one that we should hear a lot more, fertility. So I wanted to get into this a little bit about my history. So I had a conversation with you a while ago and we were talking about everything that I've done leading up to becoming 30 in terms of my fertility. And I actually, in probably 2017, went out and looked for a private gynecologist because I was experiencing symptoms of PCOS, which is polycystic ovaries. When I went to the doctors, I just really felt like I was kind of being dismissed. And the symptoms for me were so severe that it was kind of affecting my everyday life. So I started seeing a specialist for PCOS. And that's where I started with hormone replacements. And I was put on lots of things like estrogen and metformin. And it wasn't until I did the tests that I realized my estrogen was incredibly low and I had a hormone imbalance. And this is something that a lot of women face. They deal with it a lot and we're dismissed often for having hormone imbalances. And I remember when I spoke to you about this on the phone, you said to me, well done, you've been doing all the right things for your body and listening to it. And yeah, so tell us a bit about what women can do leading up to, you know, this age. And if they do feel like they have a hormone imbalance, what can be done for them? Because it's not something that really is widely spoken about. Firstly, I still say well done for at least bringing up the F word and airing a a topic that is close to so many women's hearts and uteruses. And yet we don't feel we have the ability to speak out about it. The reason for that is that we think of our reproductive systems as being separate entities to the rest of our body. And therefore, if we're not planning on getting pregnant immediately, we don't need that right now. And we tend to often suppress the activity of our reproductive system by going on contraception or otherwise. And yet our reproductive organs and our whole reproductive system, we could just cross out the word reproductive when we talk about reproductive health. Really, we're just talking about our health. There are points to remember, and that is that our reproductive organs are not just, you know, there to allow us to procreate. They're actually the essence of how we can live and survive as humans. And we are controlled by our hormones from a very young age, actually. And those hormones aren't just produced by your ovaries, they're produced by your pituitary, by your adrenals. And when we think about the activity of our hormones on our body, sometimes we don't think of them as working all together. 
And therefore, it becomes a little bit more complex when we want to try and tangle out why a symptom may be bothering us or why a collection of symptoms may just leave you feeling not well. And so it's part of, I think, every woman's first line of battle when it comes to being their best selves and putting on their armour is to say, hang on a minute, are my hormones in check? Have I got a hormone imbalance? And is there something that's upsetting me or not quite right within me that could be attributed to your hormones? And this can be anything from sleep, your metabolism, weight gain, weight loss, how your skin looks, how you feel, your confidence, quite literally almost every facet of our lives are governed by these potent chemicals in our body. Yeah. And I saw that it was 60% of women have hormone issues. Yeah. And that that's a lot of us. It's a lot of Me us. Me included. Yes. Exactly. Um, and actually one of the, the reasons why I knew something was wrong. And this was something that actually was pointed out to me. So I used to work in the fintech industry and uh, I was running a team of about 10, 10 people. And one of the guys said to me once, he was like, you you work like like a dude, like you work like a man, like you're so aggressive at work and everything. And I realized that actually a massive part of that was probably my hormones because my testosterone was high and my estrogen was low. And the thoughts that I was having, the way that I was behaving kind of makes me feel like that might have been linked to it because overall, I'm a much more balanced person now and I'm not behaving like a raging man on testosterone <laughs> <laughs> we're we're all just animals, really. Yeah, and basically. And we follow animal instinct. And the, when it comes to fertility as well, so this is only something that has recently kind of been playing in my mind. Now, the first way that this kind of thought came to me was, as I approached 30, I realized in all the years that I've been sexually active, which is quite a few... I have never once had a pregnancy scare. So either I am really good at practicing very, very safe sex, or is there a chance that I could be infertile? You know, I just would have thought that in all the years that I had even long-term partners where we might not have always been that careful, it's never happened for me. So that was kind of my first thinking as I get older and I think, oh, I've, you know, had another year of it not happening to me. That was my first thought. The second one is that I had two friends, one who I know very well and one not so well. One of them, which is how I found your company, was someone who went through early menopause and she ended up freezing her eggs, which was such an inspiring journey. And the other friend had endo and she ended up freezing some of her eggs. And it wasn't until I did a bit more research that I found a couple of vlogs on YouTube where you see only a few influencers speaking about their fertility problems. This is a problem that is affecting so many women and it is literally not being discussed or spoken about at all. Yeah. Neither has it ever been yeah. mentioned to me when I've gone to the doctors or anything. And for those of us who do want to have children, it is a factor that we probably should be thinking about probably a little bit earlier than, than what I'm thinking about it. Yeah, we've, we've shifted the dial completely on our expectations of women and our expectations of ourselves. Before the average age for having a first child, I mean, it's obviously incrementally creeped up and gotten older and older to where the average age for first child in Australia is 37. Wow. Yeah, it's 31 in the UK, but it used to be around 24. And it stands to reason that 
it's kind of not surprising that the number of women who are childless at 30 has actually doubled in the last 30 years. And yes, there are many women for whom that's not a route they want to go down and they have a choice in not wanting to have children. But there are many, many more for whom that was not their decision in the first place. They never intended to live their lives without children. The stark reality is that infertility is very prevalent and it's actually getting all the more prevalent. But we don't look at a 29-year-old and say the clock is ticking. We now look and say, you're still young. You can have fun. And very quickly, that conversation changes to say, any babies? Are you going to have a baby yet? And then the blame to where you've left it too late is immediately assumed if you turn 34, 35. And so it's a very unfair pressure we put on women to expect them to be absolutely everything, to do everything, grow your career, grow, grow your business, just survive, have a job, have an education, all of the things that aren't luxuries anymore. They're actually necessities. We actually need to work we, to survive in today's world. It's not like we're choosing our career over having a family. We have to have jobs and it's very inconvenient to try. It's very difficult to try and do both. Mm-hmm. I agree with that totally. This is reminding me of a conversation that I had recently with a friend. So her and her partner both work jobs. Her salary is actually more than her partner's salary. And he still expects her to do all the washing, all the cleaning, everything at home, take care of the dog. And it absolutely blows my mind because I had to have a conversation with her where I said, you are working just as hard, just as many hours if not more hours, because she has a lot more responsibility than him, why on earth is the responsibility of this falling on your shoulders? Because you're dating this back to when men used to go out and literally be the only financial person providing in the household. And then the women at home would literally spend their lives cleaning, cooking, all of this stuff. And looking after the children. And looking after the children. This is now a world where women have to work as well. So those responsibilities should definitely be shared equally. Absolutely. So anyway, circling back... There is really not a lot of funding towards women's health. There is the gender health gap is kind of being discussed a lot at the moment. In your experience, why why is there such a lack of funding towards women's health? I mean, since since forever, women's health has been undervalued, underfunded and deprioritized. When we look at women's health versus men's health, it's very easy to fall into a us versus them argument. The reality is that a lot of the research that has happened before has not included women in the trials. It's not because women aren't important. It's because women are more difficult to measure in scientific studies. That's not an excuse for it. But if you ask any of the pre-clinical basic science studies that work initially maybe on mice or, or different model organisms, because the female of every species can have an Easter cycle or a menstrual cycle. It means that actually there is a fluctuation and a variation sometimes if you're taking measurements or if you're looking for a reaction to something. So in order to simplify a controlled experiment, it's easier to simply use men or the males. And that's why it's women weren't even 
included in clinical trials until... Is it 1990? 1993. 1993. I mean, that is just insane when you think about it. It's actually criminal when you think about it. The fact that every single drug that we know that has been taken to market, that we take on a routine basis, has never been tested on women. And we're 51% of the population. We are dominated. Yes, we are. No, it's not great. We are significantly underrepresented in medical research. And I I can't quite believe that it wasn't until 1993 that this sort of started to change, simply because they're saying, obviously, it was harder to regulate the tests due to things, for example... Like fluctuations. Yes. We're, We're too complex. We're too hormonal. And it's just a cop out. Sure, it may require more more test subjects in order to get it right. But I think that's why our research is so important to us is that there's no excuses. If it's harder to do, so be it. I think it's worth it. To it's try definitely it. worth it. And, you know, you can't. it can't just be sort of a one solution fits all because men and women are so different. I remember when I spoke to you on the phone, you said a fact about heart attacks, which I had never thought about this before. Do you remember? Yes, we, yeah. we actually, so many of the classic symptoms for a stroke or a heart attack are the signs that you would recognise in a man. And so women are, f- are far less likely to be actually recognised as having a heart attack because they don't have the classic symptoms of a pain in the chest and falling to the floor. Actually, women tend to get heartburn and feel altogether different than men do when they're having a heart attack. So when they present at hospital, they're much more likely to be dismissed and not checked for a heart attack. And this this is actually across the board for many different pathologies and conditions that women are much more likely to be dismissed in emergency room and have to repeat visit medical services before they're actually taken seriously and recognised for having a condition, a problem, cancer. And it's because we expect women to tolerate pain. We expect women to go through a monthly cycle that can leave them debilitated or crippled, over in pain or having cramps. And so we can dismiss it all the time and just blame it on a bad period. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The amount of times as well that I have been to a doctor and I've said, you know, maybe this is wrong or this is wrong. And they just say, oh, it's just your period. It's just your period. And I'm like, well, it's totally unrelated to my ovaries. Yeah. So I'm not sure this is my period. Okay, so circling back to the F word, fertility, I wanted to talk a bit about my experience with fertility health, because this is something that I have, you know, never been offered at the doctors, never even been mentioned to me. And it was something that was creeping into my mind almost every day as sort of my age increases. So I found out about fertility health through social media. And when I did the test. It's just a little kind of blood finger prick sample, very quick and easy. The most anxious part for me was the waiting for the results. And then I got a long sort of document full of everything I needed to know about my fertility. Luckily for me, my AMH was fine. Again, something that I had I'd never even heard of AMH before. What does AMH stand for? It's anti-malarian hormone. So that's to do with your egg reserve, is that yes. correct? So each woman has, when they're born, a set amount of eggs. That's right. And each month you lose some in your cycle. Yeah. And your AMH level will give you sort of a good idea of whether your egg reserve is kind of normal 
high, low for your age. Mine was normal. And the amount of relief that I felt in that moment, I literally had some champagne that night. I was like, cheers to my (laughs) eggs. My eggs are doing great. Love you guys. And it kind of gave me a feeling where I felt like I could relax, take a breath. And I'm, you know, I know what's going on with my body. I know when I need to start sort of acting. I think for me, I've decided in my mind that kind of when I get to the age of 32, I'll probably start looking into it if I don't have a partner by then, just so that I have options. You know, knowing what's going on with your body gives you the options and the knowledge to do the right thing for you. And that's kind of something that we're really not being offered with the NHS. No, and I guess in in some aspects, there's a difference between opting in to finding out information about your body and expecting that the NHS would do routine tests for you out of curiosity. I, I think our goal is not to criticise the NHS because they're heavily burdened, but equally, there's two different situations to look at. One is where somebody has something wrong and has to advocate for themselves and fight for a blood test. The NHS will not measure AMH. It will measure other different hormones to get a proxy of your reproductive health. It's partly why we created this full panel of hormones so that we could get not just one indicator of your fertility or or ovarian reserve, but actually get the full picture. And that's why it's really important to us that we measure all of the other hormones that are in this orchestra of hormones in your reproductive system. When you told me that you kind of have always wondered about your fertility because you never really had a pregnancy scare. And I know you think you've been careful, but maybe there's been times where you haven't been so careful. That story is one I hear all the time of women saying, I've I've never had a pregnancy scare. And I've always wondered, even since they were 18 years old, why didn't I get pregnant? Now, it may have been that they had sex on the complete wrong day of their cycle. They were nowhere near ovulation, so there was no chance anyway. But nonetheless, that question kind of lives with all of us to an extent, a question around our ability to have children. Maybe it's because we ask it of ourselves, but also it's because we live in a society that constantly asks and expects it of us. When are you going to have a baby? It's quite annoying, I have to say, when constantly I feel like I'm being asked that question. And it's not something that I've even really thought about up until maybe the last two years. It's been expected of me. Definitely. Well, whether having a baby or doing something about your fertility has become expected of you, I think now the conversation has almost changed to when are you going to freeze your eggs? Exactly. (laughs) So for me, I also think that even if right now I don't feel like a baby is in the future, for me it is. But if I was in sort of a, a time where I thought, well, I'm not sure I really want to, I would probably still go down the route of freezing my eggs just in case I change my mind in the future. It's really important. We've had many people say to us, I don't even want babies. And then they do a test and they find out, you know, sadly, that they have such low ovarian reserve that actually their chances of having a baby is quite low. And their mindset changes completely. All of a sudden, they desperately want that thing because they can't have it. So giving yourself a bit of a safe haven and another option is really actually quite empowering too. I think in my situation as well, it's really important for me because I feel that pressure from people, especially my family. (laughs) I love them, but they do pressure me a lot. And uh, it makes me feel a little bit calmer in knowing that I can, you know, I want to pick the right person to have a baby with. I don't want to just have a baby with anyone because I'm like, 
panicked in this sense. Mm -hmm. I need to get pregnant now. So doing the test for me also in a way bought me a bit of time and is calming me down in terms of my dating life because I don't want to just pick someone based off of like, can this, does this person want to have a baby with me ASAP? When you say I I want to take time to find somebody that I really love and and I want to have a, a child with, that unfortunately can lend to you know, that one of the biggest reasons why women don't have children is they say they, they just didn't find the perfect partner or they didn't find the love of their life. And I honestly think that there's so much pressure on us to find that perfect person when that person is never going to be the love of your life. Mm-hmm. The true love of your life is going to be the baby that you have. 100%. Irrespective of that, per- whether that person is perfect or not. And I'm not saying, I'm not advocating that people stay in poor relationships or terrible relationships, but, you know, truly being so selective that we actually deselect our ability. We end up choking ourselves in choice and Mm -hmm. being without anything as a result. The true love of your life will be the child that you have. Yeah. I have to say that there was a period of time in my dating where I was only looking through that sort of lens of sizing up this person will they be a good potential partner for a baby the baby the baby was on the mind and as I've sort of done this test and realized that I've got a bit of time it's funny because the last few dates I've been on I feel like the narrative has switched and the guys are like so do you want to have children like anytime soon and I'm sort of thinking well bloody hell I mean (laughs) buy a girl a drink first I mean men are just as broody as women yeah they They really really, are are. but then I sort of think that if I was to go into a date and say straight off the bat so baby time when are we doing it when do you want (laughs) to when when are you and me going to reproduce and have a child within like 10 minutes of knowing them like that is such double standards because they'd be like this girl is crazy yeah Speaking of dating, especially in sort of long-term relationships, I do feel that the responsibility of birth control really does fall on women a lot of the time, whether, yeah, that's the pill, IUDs, the contraceptive injection. And, you know, it's really important, I think, when picking a partner to have someone who is happy to also share that responsibility. It's not just about that falling on the woman. You know, I've seen so many videos of men where girls give their pill packet to the guy and then they read the list of side effects mm-hmm. and it is so long and it's the funniest videos because they're like, you you have this, you can faint, you can this, you can that, like, oh my, you could have a blood clot. And they have no idea the amount of side effects that we have to go through as women just to, on the flip side, not get pregnant when you're not ready to do it. It's gotten to the point where it's now very evident how unfair the responsibility is. We are the ones who, should we get pregnant, have to carry that pregnancy. Should we not want that, we have to take action and go undergo a procedure or take a tablet that could be very painful, very distressing. I had a funny conversation recently with a male friend and we talked about, you know, this disparity between expectations and health and health provision. And, you know, they they kind of thought, well, men are just as sick and men equally don't have access to care. And I thought when when it comes to hormone health, we only ever criticise women for being hormonal. We only ever have such a negative slant. And yet one of the most damaging hormones there is in society, it's the number one cause of rape, violence, murder is testosterone and a testosterone fueled male is the most dangerous creature there is and yet we never think about suppressing or controlling or modulating a man's testosterone and 
at the time I said, wouldn't it make more sense to put teenage boys on hormonal contraception? That way at least it might suppress that crazy testosterone that drives them all mental. And he said, no, we, we couldn't do that. That might really mess them up. No. And I just thought... But that's yeah. okay then for yeah. for women. But every single girls. woman we know has had a pill, a patch, an implant, and we expect it. We expect this suppression of our innate biological function. We expect to actually modulate not one hormone, but an entire collection of hormones and to do, to do so cyclically. It's not like we have our hormones that are straight throughout the month. They fluctuate, they fluctuate throughout the month, throughout the day. So it's a lot more complex of a beast to try and suppress an entire orchestra of events like ovulation and menstruation. But to do so in men would be quite simple, really, in comparison. But the idea of it, I mean, even myself, I stopped and I thought, how controversial. Mm. Because we're so used to... The responsibility for women. responsibility. We're so used to being... I guess, finally subject to an experiment. And, and contraception is one big experiment. Some women act, you know, react very differently, but none of the individual forms of contraception that, that have been out have been subject to really long clinical trials on women that have been on that same form of contraception. One of the most frequent questions we get asked is around contraception and fertility. Does being on a given form of contraception reduce your fertility? And the answer to that if you ask most people is, no, it doesn't. But my answer is, with a question, how do we know? If you ask most women, what contraception are you on? They will say, I've been on this for this long. Before that, I was on the other. Before that, I had this. It didn't suit me. So we've been on, in our lifetime, usually a, a cocktail of contraception that may have had adverse effects, may have had no effects or fewer effects, always some effects. And so we actually don't have the data. If we were testing every 25-year-old after five years of being on a form of contraception to see whether their fertility had been reduced and testing it over time, then maybe we'd be able to give you some answers. But the reality is most women are put on a given form of contraception and whether they're on that one or five different other, they don't come off it till they're in their mid-30s, which is a point where you already have reduced fertility. So really we can't, we can't say the studies have not been done which is shocking in itself. That's that. Yeah, that is eye opening, to be honest. It is something that's crossed my mind before with all the years that I have been on birth control for. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. It makes me a bit angry because I'm sort of thinking, well, you know, my partner could just wear a condom. You know, why? Why is that such an issue? Why is that such a problem? One thing I will say is that, you know, we rely so heavily on contraception because getting pregnant is this massive thing. And the reality is getting pregnant is very difficult to do. Um, when you think about your likelihood of getting pregnant in a given month, it's actually quite low. It's a small amount of days, isn't it's, it? It's, very, it's like two or three. There are two to three days in the month that you can get pregnant. And so to me, I don't see why we don't have more general awareness that the men understand and women understand what point in their cycle they're actually likely to get pregnant. That would help a lot of people when it comes to even using condoms or not. Just being able to understand your likelihood of getting pregnant in the month and when you're definitely not going to get pregnant because you're not ovulating. 
100%. Um, so I wanted to sort of move on to smear tests and colcoscopies and all sorts of things like that. So this is also another topic around women's health that, you know, I have so many friends who have not gone for their smear test. And I cannot understand why, because again, it's like the fertility thing. Knowledge is power. And, you know, monitoring whatever's going on, that's better than not knowing. For me and my experience, I had a smear probably... I must have been 27 and mine came back abnormal with HPV. And I remember feeling so alone because I was like, oh, my God, I've got this infection, like all of this stuff. And I now go annually for colcoscopies, biopsies. In fact, just I just had the most traumatic flashback where I had a a doctor who must have been 70, this old man who barely spoke a word of English, do a colcoscopy for me. And I'm not joking, his hands were so shaky. I was actually like, whoa, 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 you know, surely we can steady your hand a little bit because this is agony. And he was like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, you know. But I'm not even joking. I've never seen someone with such shaky hands in my life. It was horrendous. I think I have a bit of PTSD surrounding that gynecologist, which is why I now always opt for a female because I feel like they understand the importance of not having shaky hands <laughs> in a moment like that. So yeah, I am going annually to get it checked. It's a virus that 80% of people will have in their lifetime. And it can also, I read that it can stay dormant in you for 10 to 20 years. And there's 200 strains. I have actually had the vaccines. So I'm hopeful that the strain I have is not cancerous because I think the vaccine does cover, cover that. But it's one of those things where also women are only being tested for HPV. So men are carrying it and they have it and they are never being tested for it. It's only women. So again, the responsibility of that falls on women to have a pap smear and, you know, deal and with... have a vaccine. And, well, actually, they've just started vaccinating boys, uh, yeah, I think. Just So this is interesting because I... I remember it's age 11 to 12, I think they vaccinate for HPV. And I must have been 15 or 16 when the vaccine came out. And they said to me, oh, it's, it's too late. You've had sex. So it's too late. And I didn't actually get my vaccine until I was probably 25. And I actually paid for it myself. And my gynecologist said to me, it is still effective. You know, if you don't have HPV right now, you should definitely go ahead and get it done. So I was quite unlucky in that sense that then after I had the course of vaccines a year later, I did then come in contact with it. But it is something that I don't think is spoken about enough because, you know, you can have it and not even know. And it is an infection that your body will eventually clear. Mine is luckily a, I think it's called a SIN1. So that means that a third of the cervix is covered with abnormal cells. And then it goes up to SIN2, SIN3. So that would be two thirds and then the whole cervix. So mine is being monitored. But again, this is something that for me, I never, ever knew about. I had no information on it. I did. I felt so alone when I got that piece of paper through that was like, yep, you have HPV and abnormal cells, you need to come in for a colcoscopy. And I was like, oh my God. It's terrifying. Because, and do you know what, since I've started opening up and talking about it, like almost every woman in my life has been like, yeah, I had it for a few years and, you know, I had to do this or I had to have them, um, 
you know, they can get rid of them through freezing, is it? Yeah. So this is also something that I don't feel is represented enough in women's health. It's not a conversation that is spoken about. It's not mentioned. Nobody's educated on it. And I also think that, again, like I said, the responsibility is totally falling on women for this. I think that's kind of goes across the board when it when you talk about a responsibility, b lack of understanding, c lack of knowledge and education around these topics. Just a quick point that I think when I first started, the age was 21 and it's now been up to 25 and it's every three years, which is quite crazy to think that people could be sexually active for 10 years and, you know, women cannot have access to a, a pap smear at any point in those 10 years. I know that the, the justification around it is that when you're younger, you can fight the virus off a lot quicker. But I also feel like they're missing a big period of us where we didn't have the vaccine and, you know, potentially could have a carry this virus and would probably like to know and monitor it. So I put a call out on Instagram to connect with members of my community and to hear what they were, sort of their burning questions were surrounding women's health. The first thing that kind of jumped out was lots of people asking, what is the success rate of conception from frozen eggs? So when we talk about success rates of frozen eggs, a lot of the literature out there is around older methods of freezing. So there is this general concept that egg freezing is not actually that successful and that your ability to conceive using frozen eggs is actually not that great. In fact, with modern freezing techniques, many clinics will freeze eggs or use fresh eggs. And when you compare transfer. So if you're going to take a frozen egg versus a fresh egg, fertilize them and then transfer one or the other. Actually, we have pretty comparable rates between a frozen embryo transfer versus a fresh embryo transfer. However, I do think that the most important thing to consider when we're looking at frozen eggs and our ability to conceive using those frozen eggs is the health of your ovary. And that's something that really, we often lump them together when we talk about your ovarian reserve equals your fertility. Your ovarian reserve equals the number of eggs you have. Your fertility is the combination of the number of those eggs plus the health of the ovary and the quality of those eggs. And that's the most important factor. Unfortunately, the most common age that women freeze their eggs is 39. So the quality of those eggs is going to be far lower than if we froze everybody's eggs at 30. And so the quality is the most important contributing factor to whether there is success from freezing eggs. If mm -hmm. you freeze something that's already gone off, mm -hmm. when you take it out of the freezer, it's still gone off. And that's a crude analogy for our eggs. But the reality is the older we get, the poorer the quality of our eggs. If I was to say the success of freezing eggs at age 30, that would be one thing. At age 31, 32. And nobody's actually done that research to okay, say so if that's... we were to collate all the 30-year-olds in the absence of PCOS, in the absence of any conditions, what are those success rates? That's something that we still, we just lump everybody in to an overall success. So that leads me on to the next question then. Someone has asked, when should I start testing my fertility? What is the best age to start? 
To be honest, I would start in your early 20s, not just testing your fertility. It's about engaging with your reproductive health. When we look at the prevalence of women who are on contraception and they say, I've been on it since I was 16 because I had irregular periods. Those are the women who later in life suffer problems, but they've just been masking those symptoms and problems for a very long time. We should get to the root cause of why people have symptoms or irregularity before immediately putting a Band-Aid on for all of their 20s and 30s with contraception. There are so many women who come off contraception or who reach a, a tipping point in their life where they say, I cannot believe I spent so much of my life feeling subpar by not understanding what hormones were out of range or were suppressed. So really it's about understanding your your reproductive hormones in addition to your fertility. But when the number of people who are infertile is one in seven, surely it stands to reason that we should be checking this much earlier. I didn't know that it was one in seven. One in seven heterosexual couples are infertile. What can cause infertility in women? So if you were to look up on the National Institute for Health website, it actually lists 11 different causes of female infertility, ranging from anovulation, which is the inability to ovulate, to a structural problem so that you might have scarred fallopian tubes, to a uterine defect or a uterine problem so that the lining of your womb wouldn't allow an embryo to implant, to menstrual dysfunction, to polycystic ovarian syndrome. So there's there's syndromes that, that affect your hormones. Then there's physical manifestations that affect the reproductive physiology. There are many different reasons for female infertility. The number one, as I mentioned, is tends to be age. But it's why I, I feel that without proper understanding of our body, we all, all always assume that should someone not be able to get pregnant, they should just go for fertility treatment. And part of what we want to build at fertility is an understanding as to why you may not be fertile mm-hmm. and why your fertility may be reduced. Mm-hmm. Is it hormonal? Is it structural? Is it physical? Is it chromosomal? So can it be genetic? Yes, absolutely. Okay. One in 500 people has what's called a disorder of sexual differentiation. In other words, their actual reproductive organs have not formed correctly from in utero. Mm -hmm. And so this can... I'm thinking of the heart-shaped womb. Is that something? So yes, it can be a uterine defect, like like a it's called a bicornate uterus, which is a heart-shaped yep. womb. Or it can be down to how your ovaries form. It's actually what I did my PhD on was the formation of an ovary in utero and the different genes that are responsible for the correct formation of an ovary. And it's amazing to see that even slight interruptions to the expression or the, the potency of that gene when we're developing as a fetus can actually cause the ovary to not form correctly. And there's an amazing switch between how an ovary forms and a testis forms. So there are many people who have reproductive conditions that we don't know about because they're under their trousers. Wow, okay. And they don't know about until they possibly go to conceive or until they maybe don't have a period. Yeah, okay. So obviously with genetics, there's not really much we can do there. But what can you do as a woman to kind of increase your chances and also not just that physically, but help yourself mentally through a process like this? I think when it comes to fertility, we have to break things down to the simple components of conception, and that is a sperm and an egg. And we are quite unfortunate in that we are born with all the eggs we'll ever have. 87% of our egg reserve is gone by age 30. And that 
that number is jarring in itself. But our our health and our exposures are really, really important for the health of an egg every given month. We often disassociate our input, the things we put in our body, with our ovarian function because we think that that is something that just exists. But when you compare drinking to its effect on your liver, why do we think it only affects our liver? It affects every organ. And there have been studies showing that drinking at certain times of your of the month, for example, when you're in that, that follicular phase where you're, all the follicles or would-be eggs are, are starting, to, starting to ramp up and one of them will be released that month, drinking at that stage actually has a really cataclysmic effect on your ability to conceive. I'm having a terrifying realisation right now that my little eggs are probably alcohol soaked (laughs) and totally shriveled up. I think there are many pickled ovaries out there but that's that's I mean I've met so many women even they're, they're going through IVF and they're like oh I hope this works and they're chugging some wine and I'm like please put it put it down must I mean, stop I'm, chugging wine I need it, to add that to my list of things to do okay <laughs> and you, you sound so such a purist to say you know there are there are really simple steps that you can take to increase your chances of having a baby and the first is what you put into your body because it's essentially what you're surrounding your eggs in what we eat is incredibly important to our hormones as well you know different foods contain different levels of components that will either increase or lower our hormones. Part of what we wanted to build with fertility and the actionable insights that we give you is to look at every single hormone we test and then break it down into what are the different things that could cause that hormone to be elevated out of range or to be lowered out of range. And we looked at the foods that could cause them to become elevated or lowered, the medications that we take, the reproductive conditions, obviously, the non-reproductive conditions. Many people have Im- immune conditions that can affect your hormones. And when it comes to medications, people are taking, you know, non-serotonin uptake inhibitors or antidepressants. They can affect your hormones. And then what are the lifestyle factors, be it through diet or actual exercise, that can alter our hormones, of which there are many. So we know that even different types of training can have an, an effect on our different hormones, be it through endurance training or through strength conditioning. Those actually can alter your hormones in a significant way. So understanding that what you're doing with your body is really important to understanding your, I guess, fertility. When we think about exercise, so many women are over-exercising to the point that... They lose their periods. They lose their periods. Yeah. Um, and the reality is your body is actually under physiological stress mm-hmm. and it doesn't recognize that you're running for exercise. It, it recognizes from a very evolutionary standpoint that you are running away from something right. and therefore you're in danger. Wow, that's that's incredible. I never thought about it like that. Well, quite. And and when I say that we're unfortunate and that we are born with all the eggs we ever have, so every experience we have, they've lived through with us. Men, on the other hand, have a three-month life cycle of sperm where the sperm is forming throughout those three months. So in just three months of them abstaining from, you know, poor food and, and, and alcohol, they have a much healthier sperm count and a much healthier sperm. So when we always talk about couples conceiving, it's always the woman who is restricting herself from alcohol or poor food. And in actual fact, it's much easier to have a healthy conception if the man joins with her and abstains from those things too. Mm -hmm. Those bastards, they have no (laughs) idea what we go through. Anyway, thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with me today. I have learned 
so much. The most important thing is that I need to cut down my drinking. Um, so tell us where people can find you and where they can find Hitility Health. And I think you have a code for the listeners because a lot of you are interested in doing a Hitility Health test. And I think you have a code that could help people. Yes, we do. You can find us at fertilityhealth.com. There's lots of information. We are really committed to having lots of blog articles and information around all aspects of women's health. We also have Instagram. You can find me separately also on Instagram as Dr. Helen O'Neill. And our code is podcast10 for a 10% discount off our daily health test. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been great chatting. (laughs) 